get you all to quit visiting. I'm, uh, I'm Marty Schoenlieber. I lost a lot of hair this week. No, I'm not. Put on a little weight, too. No. Uh, no, I'm Joe Payne. I'm one of the elders here. I'm glad to, glad to be with you all sharing the word of God this morning. Amen? Amen. I uh, want to look at uh, a verse together. I think that first slide is Revelation, right? Or did we already do that one? We already did that one. Okay. No, we don't have to do it again. I don't want you to jump all around. Um, I'm going to read that to you. When he had taken the scroll, the four and living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy. Amen? New songs aren't just happening down here, right? New songs are happening even in heaven. Wow. Keith Green and David, they're going to get together and make some awesome songs. Huh? Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time this morning. Thank you for your presence among us. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is just food for our souls. We thank you, Lord, that this morning you are present. You inhabit the praises of your people and that, Lord, you love us. You've got good plans for us. And even during the hard times, Lord, we cling to you. We know that you are good. You would not give a stone when we ask for bread. You would not give us a scorpion when we ask for a fish. So be, Lord, good to us this morning. Transform us, change us, rebuke us if we need it. We, Lord, in your wisdom, we know that that even that is of your goodness, that you correct us. And you encourage us and you strengthen us when we need it. We thank you that you're so good. You are a good, good, good father. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, this morning I want to talk about a new song and I'm going to give it a new definition a little bit, our Ebenezer. New song is our Ebenezer. And we're going to look at the passage the first time in the Bible where it talks about Ebenezer. And it's a little bit about what a uh, uh, new song has to do with. It has to do with marking where God's grace has brought you thus far and memorizing it and, and marking it out for yourself and for others. And so, of course, when you think of Ebenezer, what's the first thing you think of? Scrooge, right? Who said Scrooge? Yeah. If I had a candy bar, I'd throw it out there. Um, by the way, if you're visiting us this morning, we're so glad you're here. And uh, please get us those cards, and we just love to serve you in any way we can. There's also a gift in the back there at the information table, either a book or a CD, and we'd love to bless you with that. Filling your home with worship is awesome, drives the enemy far away, amen? And um, <clears throat> so we'd love to, love to serve you in any way we can. Fill out those cards for us, please. Get them to the, either the ushers or the information table in the back. Um, Ebenezer Scrooge was a character in whose book? You remember? Charles Dickens. Very good. Very good. Awesome. In 1840, anybody? No, no. 1843, A Christmas Carol. A beginning, Scrooge is a cold-hearted miser who despises Christmas. The tale of the redemption by three spirits, the ghosts of Christmas past, the ghosts of Christmas present, the ghosts of Christmas future, uh, has become a defining tale 
of the Christmas holiday in the English-speaking world. It has been said, and we, we know this to be a fact, that he chose the name of Ebenezer, which means a stone of help. Say that together with me, stone of help. That's what Ebenezer is. And Ebenezer um, is because of the help that he was given at that time in his life to turn his life around when God permitted the three angels. So that's what Dickens had in his mind. Scrooge may have been influenced by his conflicting feelings for his father. How many knew that? I I didn't know that. Um, He both loved and he also demonized his father. Um, Psychological conflict could be responsible for the two radically different Scrooges in the tale. One, a cold, stingy, greedy, semi-recluse, and the other, a benevolent, sociable man. So what is a new song? You know, David would always say, you know, in the Psalms, we see this, we've been studying this idea of a new song. New song, again, it is a time of memorializing God's working in your life. David would do it with a new song. Because why? Because he was a musician, right? So how can we do that? If, I, if you don't play an instrument or you don't know how to come up with new songs, how do you memorialize uh, God's working in your life? Um, it's sort of, it, it's, it tells the story of your life history and the deliverance of God at that moment in history. Um, it's like an Ebenezer, and we'll see Ebenezer a little bit, uh, what it has to do with the stone of help. It is thus far the Lord has helped us. Um, what are other types of new songs? Did you know that you could consider an Ebenezer, you could consider the time you got baptized, amen? It's kind of a type of Ebenezer, a type of marking in your life. Look, I'm symbolizing what happened. I was dead in my sins. I was far from God. I died with Christ, right? When you're put under the waters. Then you rose with Christ to a new life. You're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So you're kind of... Ebenezerizing it, now, now I'm inventing words, but you, you, um, you're marking in that point, communion, we're about to celebrate communion, that could be considered a type of marking in your life, this thus far, you know, the goal of, of communion is that you're in peace with your brothers, amen, you know, Paul actually says don't come to the communion table in, a, in an unworthy manner, you know, and I, there's been times where people have had to just leave the communion table, and go say, brother, forgive me, sister, forgive me, um, um, and, and get right. And then you're, you come forward, and then you celebrate Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross with his body and his blood, the symbols of his body and, his, and the blood. Marriage is definitely a type of new song, right? Amen? Who's been married here less than five years? Less than five years. Amen? Anybody? Okay. Amen. Brother, one, two, two, amen, amen, five... I feel like I've been married less than five years. It's awesome, you know, when you love your wife like crazy. And um, Diaries, some people kind of keep a record of diaries. It's sort of an Ebenezer. They, they write down and it's sort of someday they know their kids are going to get Snoopy and look in that diary, right? And um, they're, they're marking it down. Memorial stones, some people, I have a William stone that I memorialize sort of. When I drive by down in Lancaster, there's a red, white, and blue rock right on the exit ramp there. And every time I go by there, because William said, look at that rock, Grandpa. He's my grand- grandson, by the way. He said, look at that rock, Grandpa. So for some reason, that stuck in my head. So every time I drive by there, I just pray for him. And I just say, Lord, thus far you've brought him, Lord. Continue on and intercede for him, you know. Um, what are other types? Uh, what, what, what does it do? What is really, what does an Ebenezer do? It testifies to us and it marks us. 
It marks us. Um, it can also, um, it, it takes courage to do that sometimes, to publicly testify. Can you remember back to when you were baptized, the courage that you had to muster up in the Lord to do that, to, t- to declare, say, you know what, I was far from God and now I'm his. Um, um, it, when, you, when, you, when you're willing to do that, when you're willing to testify, when you're willing to make a public stance, um, it kind of separates the kickers from the, from the buyers, the tire kickers, you know, how you go up to a car and kind of kick the tire to see whether it's, but you're not really interested in buying, you know. If you're a tire kicker in Christianity, are you saved? <laughs> That's a good question. Or are you a buyer, right? When you're willing to take, make a public stand, you're separating yourself. I'm not a tire kicker anymore. I'm all in with Jesus. Amen? That's, that's part of the difference. Um, it also defeats the enemy. Uh, Revelation 10 verses, uh, verse, chapter 12, verse uh, 10 through 12, um, talks about they defeated the enemy with, does anybody know? The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death. So the word of your testimony are the truths that you've lived. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Um, It's the truths that you've seen God do, the truths that you know that you know that are true, not just kind of head knowledge, but they've moved from here down to here, and you know that they're true. Um, And it also, it helps if you're willing to do these, sort of mark out, God has brought me this far. If you're willing to testify, if you're willing to mark that, whether it's just for yourself or for others, um, it also strengthens you. It deals a death blow to what can happen later on where you begin to doubt about who you are in Christ. You know, when you get baptized, you know, you, you, you're declaring, I am a Christ follower. There's no looking back for me. I'm, I, he's, brought me he's brought me thus far. I declare for him, you know, um, I've, I've put my faith in him. Now I'm going to show it publicly and declare it publicly. Does that, is that a strength to you sometimes later on in your life? The enemy starts getting in there and kind of messing with your mind a little bit and gets you thinking about, um, you know, were you really sincere? Did God really save you? Did you really change? Did you really have faith that day? Was that really what happened? But you know what? When we make public stances for God, it's a source of strength for us. It's not what saves us. Don't confuse me. I'm not saying that. But it's what strength, it can strengthen us. The Holy Spirit will say, yes, it was so real to me. I took that public stance. I declared for him. And that's what God uses. But let's look at, an, at the passage that talks about Ebenezer. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 7. You can open your Bibles. What do we know about the, uh, the backdrop here in chapter 7? 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, these are the early days. Uh, during the early days of Samuel was a prophet. And uh, his story is amazing how he came to serve the Lord. Um, the early, his early days as a prophet, um, Israel received back the ark. They had lost it in a battle to the Philistines. And do we know what the ark is? Um, the ark, this is not Noah's ark, right? We're not talking about Noah's ark. Um, Um, Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Testimony, you'll see different terms for it. Um, It contained the two stone tablets that God wrote the Ten Commandments on, or Moses wrote it on. Um, um, It had some manna, it had Aaron's rod in it, the budding rod. 
Um, and it symbolized, this is the most important thing, the ark symbolized God's presence among his people. So they brought the ark wherever they went when they'd go into battle. Um, and they had lost it during one of their battles. They lost it in a war. And they'd just gotten it back. Um, it went with them in the battle up to Jericho. It was um, uh, at the waters of the Jordan split when they went into the promised land. Do you remember that? Um, it remained in Shiloh, a, a town there, until Eli's time. Um, during Israel's years of learning to walk with God and identity formation, it remained on the outskirts of the, of the people. But that was changing. This was perhaps a first awakening leading into David's time where the ark was brought from the outskirts of the people to, into Jerusalem and became rightly the center of Israel's worship. And so, so distressing that actually uh, in Eli's time when he heard that the ark was taken by the Philistines, it says he fell backwards from his chair. He broke his neck and he died, actually. Uh, and sadly, even with the loss of the ark, the nation was not yet ready to come before God in full repentance. It took 20 years. So if we start in chapter 7, it says, So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath, Jerim, a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented before the Lord. Now, they were getting used to living without the presence of the Lord. They were getting used to living with him relegated to one day a week. They were getting used to him being on the outskirts. They were getting used to doing their lives without God. And um, it was starting to bother them at this period. There's times where we can get used to living without God's presence. There's times where we get used to it either ideologically or experientially. And if, we get, if we get used to living without God's presence ideologically, um, that means we've moved towards deism. Do you know de- deism? You're familiar with that term? Kind of the founders were, some of the founders of this country were into that. And that's sort of the idea that God just kind of wound the world up and he kind of left it. And he doesn't really get involved in men's daily lives, men's or women's daily lives. Um, um, it's a belief in the existence of a supreme, supreme being, specifically of a creator, but who does not intervene in the universe. The term is used chiefly of an intellectual movement in the 17th and 18th centuries that accepted the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but rejected belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with mankind. Ideological um, deism, ideologically moving away from from wanting the presence of God is much more difficult to overcome. When somebody is locked in ideologically to living without the presence of God because they think he, he's too far, he doesn't care or whatever, how, whatever that, I want to call it a subtle error, a subtle heresy, whatever that is that's crept into their, their mind, it's much more difficult to dislodge that and come back into a full faith that God does get involved in our lives. That's extremely, but experientially too, we also um, can grow used to living without God's presence. Um, it's very subtle, um, you know, and it's usually related to sin, unconfessed sin. Uh, Psalm 66 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear, right? So there's already a distancing there. Um, Isaiah 59 says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face 
from you so that he will not hear. Even in John chapter 9, um, this basic truth was grasped by the blind man who was healed by Jesus, right? He's, he's inter- dialoguing with the Pharisees and the Pharisees are saying, how did he heal you? How did he do it? And he says, I don't know. He says, all I know is I was blind, but now I see, right? But he says, they said, well, how did he do it? Come on, he's a sinner. And he said, well, the blind man knew this truth. He said, well, we know that God does not hear sinners. He, he had grasped that much from the Old Testament. He doesn't seem to be a scholar at that point, but he didn't need to be a scholar, right? And he was confronting Pharisees because of the word of his testimony. He knew, could anybody can go to him and convince him, you weren't blind before. Could any go to him and convince him, no, he didn't heal you. There is no way. I mean, you could put a knife to his throat. Come on, admit it. Go ahead and kill me. I was blind. What else can I say? I was blind and now I see. And you see how powerful the word of our testimony is. Those truths that we have lived, that we've personally experienced. And you get enough of those under your belt. You're walking with God for years. Man, God's going to use you in a powerful way. Amen? Amen. Um, this is a little harder, um, but it's, it's not as hard as ideologically moving away from uh, living in God's presence. So the solution here is simpler. Um, when we're feeling that God's not involved in our lives, we're feeling that he's distanced from us, we're growing, we can be in danger of growing accustomed to living without the, the presence of God in our lives. Uh, Acts 3.19 says it, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times may be of refreshing may come from the presence, presence of the Lord. The Israelites, it was starting to bother them. They lamented, it says there in verse 2. They lamented. They were beginning to notice the difference. Something is missing. We're missing here God's presence. So in verse 3, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you. Prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So God here is laying out a simple plan, a clear plan, uh, how to move from lamentation to a new song. It's clear. He's laying it out. Did you know that God is always willing to make the way out clear to us? Amen? He really is. If, you've, if you're in a period of your life where you're feeling like God is distanced, and you know what? I, you know, Joe, I, I've actually kind of grown accustomed to that. I just, you know... I've even got some theological reasons why he's distanced. You know what? Ask God to search your heart. That's, that's what's, that's what's going to turn it around for you. Sometimes there's incorrect things we're thinking. Sometimes it's sin. The Israelites had other things that were more important to them. You see how subtle it can be. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of our favorite verses, Right? It says, um, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You're not the first one that's felt distanced from God. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation 
will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. You know, God let me uh, experience too hard of a temptation. Not true. Not true. He says, he says he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He says he'll make a way of escape. He lays out the plan for Israel, but if you don't know, if it's, if it's muddy to you, if it's unclear, if you're confused, um, you need more of God's word. Amen? God, so many of our problems and so much of our suffering is just because we don't know God's word. Isn't it true? I want to say 80%. I mean, I don't know who could quantify it, but I'm going to guess a large percentage, 80 to 90%, I think, of our problems are because we don't know God's word. We don't know the principles. You know, somebody was sharing me one time, I, I started this business and uh, this guy wants to take money and he wants to take our profits and go down to the uh, gambling hall and, and, and throw it on the horses or whatever, you know, something like that. He wanted to do something ridiculous. He says, I'm not in agreement with that. He says, I, says, I, I, I was asking him, you know, well, he's like, you're a believer, right? He's like, yeah. He goes, what about that guy? He goes, no. I was like, well, you know, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 6 that says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever you know going into business with an unbeliever you know at some point you're going to be pulling in opposite directions and why was that could he have avoided all those problems and all that conflict and all that the issues that he was going through if he had just knew God's word if he just knew that one principle yes yes he wouldn't have gone in there in the first place and uh, so much uh, there's so much clear counsel in God's word not every you know he still wants us dependent on him each day and seeking him and asking him and so there's there's particular applications maybe that you're not going to find but the principles are there the principles are in God's word oftentimes we get into um, situations that you know we, we're, we're feeling confused and God's word will make much of that clear for us when you're full of the Holy Spirit and God's word you know what? The devil has an awful time bringing you down. Amen? It's so true. Verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzpah. You know, keeping a short account with the Lord is important too. The first most important thing is getting saved, right? If you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you've never come to a point, nobody, you know, God doesn't have grandchildren, somebody told me once. I like that. You can't say, well, I'm going to go to, I'm expecting to go to heaven or I'm in the kingdom or I'm God's child because my daddy was or my mama was. Mm -mm. That doesn't work. You have to make a personal decision. It's important that you be reconciled to God, that you accept that you are guilty and, and a sinner, that I accept. You know, I did it in 1981, August. I, I, I got on my knees, I prayed, I said, God, I know I'm guilty before you. I know that I need your forgiveness. I know that I've been far, but I repent, right? That's, what's repent? I promise never to sin again? No. Repent is, I was chasing after my sin, and running far from God. I repent. Now I'm running towards God and away from my sin. Doesn't mean I might not trip once in a while, but He's there to pick me up, right? The righteous fall six times, they get up seven, right? 
Um, you repent, I put my faith in Christ. I said, Lord, I know that you died on that cross for me and I place my faith in what you did only to, to forgive me, to cleanse me, to give me a future with you. And man, things started changing when that happened, right? But we come to a personal decision. You know, you, you young folks, you can't say, well, I was always in the church. No, when did you decide for yourself? When did you decide to put your faith in Christ and become a Christ follower? That is so key. It's taking um, that intimacy. But the second thing is to keep short accounts with the Lord, right? Does anybody speak Spanish here? I learned this phrase in Spanish. I don't know if I'd ever heard it. But cuentas cortas, amistades largas, right? If you have short accounts, you have long friendships, right? <laughs> right? Um, keep a short account with the Lord, you know? It says, it says um, don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? So every day we're checking in with the Lord, right? Keeping the account short. It says, you know, when you get together for, for communion, you know, to, stop then and pause. Get, get, the, get everything clear with the Lord, you know. Um, there's different times when God built it into the, the calendar of Israel to, be, to get the accounts short, to get things clear, with the Lord and, and to not let things just, well, he'll just wink at my sin. He'll just put it underneath the carpet. You know, um, no. First John 1, 9, I call it the, the uh, walking stick of the believer. Because you stumble, you trip, you fall, but you get up, you take that walking stick and you get back up and you keep moving forward. What does it say? It says, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Um, he's faithful because he promised it. You come to me, you confess your sins. You, you know what confess is? Confessar, confess. Say with. Say the same thing that God says about your sin. You confess it, Right? He's faithful because he promised, because he said he would forgive you. But he's also just. Why is he just? Not because he winks at the sin. He's just because he already judged that sin. Can you imagine if I took my grandson, I said, William, you did wrong yesterday? Pow, pow. Then the next day I said, remember two days ago you did that thing? I'm going to do you again. Pow, pow. Then third, the third day, pow, pow. No. I would be unjust if I did that, Right? It's just because he punished it in Christ. And if you're in Christ, that sin was already judged. Amen? It's already been punished. And you're free in him. Hallelujah. Um, cleanse us. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's a future. That's a process. It's an ongoing process. You know, so many times we get bogged down in the mud of sin. Because we don't stop and confess. We let it go. We just let it build up. And you know what? There's a process that we're missing. The cleansing that happens. When you confess it, you, you experience a cleansing. The pathway to victory over a besetting sin is confessing it. It's key. It's key. You may, you may be back a week later in the same sin. It could happen, right? could happen. But you go and you confess again. And you wait for the Holy Spirit to produce 
that agreement with God on it. You wait until he produces that in you. And little by little, if you stay faithful, you confess, you confess, you confess. You don't just let it go. You know what? Eventually you get the victory over it. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that. Confession is key to getting long-term victory. And uh, I want to put a little video up. And uh, some of you have seen this, but it's from Fireproof. And uh, it's the key. We're going to be looking at how the Israelites, it says they put away the bales and the ash terrace. Let's look at this clip here from Fireproof. You know, he's just reconciled with the Lord here and he's working. He's being tempted. Hallelujah. That kind of zeal was the Israelites' response. That kind of zeal. Um, it says they put away, they put them away, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They put them away, not for a rainy day, right? They didn't put them away for a rainy day. They put them away. And they bore the fruits of repentance. When you repent, it's not just in word only, right? There's actions that accompany it. Working down in, in Bolivia, we used to run across guys that would, would 
would be struggling with alcohol, we'd go get them off the streets and, and bring them in and we'd, we'd talk to them. And, you know, they would, the first day or the first week, they would get saved and they would feel the Lord's forgiveness. They would sense it. They would know it. And they're like, I want to go back. I want to go work with, you know, uh, my family again. I want to start, start working with them. We say, you know what? Stay here. Learn more principles. Continue to learn the principles in God's word. Learn God's word because you're going to need that when you go back. What, what, what triggered you to, to turn to alcohol? You know, well, I was experiencing pain with my boss or my wife or my, my kid or whatever. So I wanted the pain to stop. So I just kept drinking. And uh, we'd say, just, just, just hold off. And say, where did you buy it? Well, it was this one store. You know, when I'd come home from work, I'd pass right by that store and I'd see it and I'd go in there and get some. It's like, you know what? When you've got the fruits of repentance, we'd teach them about this, and we'd say, go the long way around. You know, you're repentant. You're repentant. Don't go by that store. Don't put yourself under that kind of pressure. You know, take, even though it's an extra half a mile, do it. You know, that was a $1,400 repentance there or whatever. I don't know what a computer cost him. It's awesome, you know. Probably cost the Israelites, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They're probably made of gold and who knows. They bore the fruits of repentance. So Samuel said, Go, gather all of Israel to Mitzpah. I'll pray to the Lord for you. They gathered together at Mitzpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord. They fasted that day. He's following the steps of the Lord's plan to get to from lamentation to new song. He's following their steps. Repentance with fruit, prayer, fasting, confession, getting other people to pray for you. You know, that was pretty embarrassing too there, wasn't it, when the old neighbor was looking at him? I don't, repentance doesn't care. Zealous, fruitful repentance doesn't care. I, I'm going to do it. I don't care who's, who's, who knows. And if you get your brother involved and you confess that, that is also a source of strength. And then you get him praying for you or her praying for you. You got something going there. You're, you got a recipe for beating that, that sin, not falling back in it. So they gathered and they got together says verse 7 to 9 of chapter 7 first uh, Samuel when the, Israel, when the children of Israelites heard it they were afraid of the Philistines the children of Israel said to Samuel do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines Samuel took a lamb offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him it says that God confused the uh, Philistines it says the Israelites were then able to drive them back. So they got the victory in battle. What does it say in verse 12? Samuel took a stone. He set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And that's kind of the idea. That's the idea of marking what God has done to deliver you, to bring you out of the mire of sin and of this world of darkness. Marking it, you make it public testimony that others can see in your life, others can see what God has done in your life and that strengthens their faith and that lifts them up, that encourages them. And we're gonna do that. I'm gonna ask the elders to come forward now. We're gonna, 
we're going to mark right now. We're going to sing a new song. <laughs> and uh, I think the worship team's coming up too. We want to uh, remember the Lord's death. He did it all at the cross. He gave his life. His body was sacrificed for us. His blood was shed. You know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God never just winks at sin. He always um, has required a life from day one. Adam, if you eat that tree, what's going to happen? You will surely die. But in his mercy, when he closed them, he allowed those animals to die in Adam's place. Can you imagine for the first time ever, Adam's watching that animal being slain. He's like, because of my sin. That animal had to die the first time he saw a death. And God later on taught the Israelites about a substitute, a substitute for death. And then John the Baptist saw Jesus. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's what we're going to celebrate now. So um, let me uh, get down here. Lord, we know that uh, we are unworthy. We know that, Lord, that you reached out to us and we said no so many times. But there came that day and we finally said yes to you. I ask you right now, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, Lord, would you teach them to say yes? Would you conquer their hearts as you conquered mine and ours? Would you reach them, Lord, and show them that they need you, how desperately they need you? Have them say yes to you and receive your free gift of forgiveness through what you did, Lord Jesus, on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.